we bless your name for the revelation that you've given us throughout the Holy Scriptures of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, O God, for uh, the progression of redemptive history and the way that you uh, reveal Christ our Savior, even in the kings of, of the Old Covenant, the kings of the Old Testament Scriptures. And we ask, O Father, that you would open our eyes, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you'd bless the hearing of your word through the help of the Holy Spirit, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 13 covers the reigns of two kings of Israel, Jehoaz and his son Jehoash, who like his Judean counterpart, is sometimes called Joash and sometimes called Jehoash in the Hebrew text. We'll, uh, at least we'll try to call the northern king Jehoash uh, to avoid confusion. The time frame of their reigns is from approximately 812 to 781 B.C., a mixture of sin and grace characterizes the whole narrative of these two kings. And the chapter ends by affirming God's covenant faithfulness. So we have sin and grace and covenant faithfulness. It's a very instructive chapter. A specific content of, or rather context of these two reigns is Jehovah's promise to Jehoahaz's father, Jehu, in chapter 10 and verse 30, that his descendants would reign in the north for four generations. And here in chapter 13, the first two among those generations emerge. The end of uh, the dynasty that is, Jehu's dynasty is described in 15, chapter 15, verses 18 uh, through 22. Neither Jehoahaz nor his son Jehoash are godly, but both turn to Jehovah in times of crisis. The background of both reigns is war with Aram, which is been a recurring theme since Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 20 and 22 and had often been a means by which God had judged the wickedness of his people. It's a very familiar theme here in chapter 13. God sees the oppression of his people even though due to their sin. He moves his people to seek his favor. He listens to their entreaties. And in his covenant faithfulness, he sends them a deliverer, but they don't repent. It's a familiar theme in uh, the history of the kings. 
It's a theme that we're very familiar with from the book of Judges. Several things here. In the first place, a familiar manifestation of sin. Secondly, uh, the surprising intervention of grace. And thirdly, another squandered opportunity for repentance. In the first place then, a familiar manifestation of sin. The description and the summary of both reigns, verses 1 and 2 and 8 and 9 for Jehoahaz, 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 for Jehoash, is all too familiar for readers of the king's narratives. Jehu's reform and his purge of Baalism had not turned Israel back to Jehovah. The golden calf cult is alive and well in the northern kingdom. This is no surprise. We're used to hearing about this by now. Having begun with Jeroboam, the first king of the north, it had been revived under Jehu after a long period of of primary, the, the, the worship of Baal in of the northern kingdom of Israel, and it had become entrenched in uh, Jehoahaz. He followed the sins of Jeroboam. He did not turn from them, verse 2, and of Jehoahaz, he did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, but he walked in them, verse 11. This picture is for us the pervasive character of sin and idolatry. Sin is characteristic to the heart of fallen man. Uh, There is a remnant of sin that yet remains in uh, the heart of God's believing people. And idolatry is pervasive in humanity. It's humanity's go-to in, ter- in terms of worship. They, uh, they worship idols. It also confirms that sin has consequences. For Jehoahaz, it... Uh, As with his predecessors, it came in the form of oppression from the nation of Aram in the north, from Aram or Syria in uh, in, uh, the north. In this case, Hazael, king of Aram, verse 3. We're already familiar with Hazael. He had used, the Lord had used Hazael to judge his father, Jehu who, while he eradicated Baal out of Israel, as for the sins of Jeroboam, from these, 1 Kings 10, 32 and 33, he did not uh, depart. Not even from the golden calves at Bethel, 
chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. More, more recently, the, the Lord had used Hazael uh, to chastise Joash, Jehoahaz's counterpart in Judah, for his half-heartedness. So the oppression of Israel from Aram, and uh, in this case, uh, in the form of Hazael, king of Aram, and uh, Ben-Hadad, his son, would continue in the reign of Jehoahaz. God is the Lord of history. And the latter prophets develop the theme that God will use powerful nations to judge the wickedness of his covenant people. Isaiah will say that about the Assyrians. Isaiah 10, verses 5 to 18, and Habakkuk about the Babylonians. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. The manifestation of sin, the blight of iniquity on humanity is all so familiar and unsurprising. What's surprising is what happens next in verses 4 and 5. That brings us to, secondly, uh, the surprising intervention of grace. The first surprise in verse 4 is that Jehoahaz entreated the favor of Jehovah. Instinctively, one uh, commentator writes, readers of this passage are inclined to shoot him down with their Proverbs 28.9 missile. He who turns away, away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. But there's an even more surprising surprise in verse 4. The Lord listened to him. Why in the world would the Lord listen to a calf worshiper? Verse 4 answers, For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Aram oppressed them. This is a deliberate echo of the Exodus account on the part of the spirit-inspired writer of Kings. Exodus 2.23, the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry of help, because of their bondage, rose up to God. So he heard their groaning. The same Hebrew noun and verb of 2 Kings 13.4 appear in Jehovah's word in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 9. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. And now in the history of the kings, Jehovah sees the oppression of Aram and expresses the same sentiment here in verse 4. He saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Arab oppressed them. The inspired writer of Kings is saying 
that Jehovah is still the same Exodus God who sees not only Egyptians, but Arameans squeezing the life out of his people. Here in Kings, his apostatizing people. How did Jehovah answer Jehoahaz? Verse 5, he gave Israel a deliverer. We could translate this, he gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from under the hand of the Arameans and the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. Israel experienced a new time of of peace from their uh, oppressors, a new time of security uh, that they had not seen for some time. But everyone wonders who the Savior is. Who is the Deliverer? Who is the Savior that God graciously sent to Israel? Some think it's an Assyrian named Adad. Rari III, we uh, know of him from extra-biblical history, not from biblical history, who would, uh, that he was the one who would save by neutralizing the nation of Aram. Others think it's Elisha. I think it's a dual reference to Jehoahaz's son and grandson, Jehoash and Jeroboam II. The Hebrew verb to save occurs both in connection with Jehoash, verse 17, he, that is Elisha, said, open the window toward the east, and, and he opened it, and Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, the Lord's arrow of victory Uh, The same root here as the root, uh, the Hebrew root for salvation. Even the arrow of victory, uh, the arrow of salvation over Aaron. And then, uh, most convincingly, in uh, chapter 14 and verse 27, We read, the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Johash. And look what he says of um, Jehoash in verse 25. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoash, took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken in war, from the hand of Jehoahaz his father, three times Joash, that is Jehoahaz, as we're calling him, defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. So Jehovah sends uh, this deliverer. Why did, uh, why did Jehovah save Israel? Why did he uh, deliver Israel? Well, on a simple level, The answer is grace. This passage has grace inscribed upon it in bold letters. It was grace that moved Jehoahaz 
to entreat the favor of Jehovah. It was grace that caused Jehovah to, to listen to Jehoahaz. Look at the recapitulation section in uh, verses 22 and the first part of 23. Now, uh, Hazael, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. But verse, uh, the second part of, of verse 23 supplies an even more fundamental answer to the question, why did Jehovah save Israel? It was because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would not destroy them or cast them out of his presence until now. Once again, there's a deliberate echo of Exodus chapter 2. The sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, verse 23 and verse 24. God heard their growing, a groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant is the ultimate ground of divine grace. Once again, the writer of Kings is saying that Jehovah is still the same Exodus God who sees not only the Egyptians, but the Arameans oppressing his people. A familiar manifestation of sin. The surprising intervention of grace. One word in verse 6 summarizes Israel's sad response to God's surprising intervention with his grace. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it did not matter to the sons of Israel. And that leads us to the final point here, another squandered opportunity for repentance. Nevertheless, they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam with which he made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah, that is, uh, the female deity, the female counterpart of Baal, uh, the female fertility goddess remained standing in Samaria. Jehovah had lavished upon them grace upon grace. But in the wake of Jehovah's surprising grace in verses 4 to 5, we meet Israel's entrenched ingratitude in verse 6. The warmth of God's pity didn't soften the hardness of their infidelity. Mercy doesn't melt them. The presence of grace doesn't evoke their gratitude. Nevertheless, they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam. 
This follows the pattern uh, that we've seen in Second Kings, uh, well, in all of Kings, really, especially concerning uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. There are so many divine overtures of grace to Israel, and yet they didn't turn from their sin. For example, 1 Kings 20, verses 1 to 20, the Lord delivered Ben-Hadad. This is the first Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, and his vast army into the hands of Ahab. But Ahab did not return to the Lord. uh, Lord, 2 Kings 3, verses 1 to 20, uh, he delivered Ahab's son, Jehoram, in a miraculous way when the king of Moab rebelled against Israel. But Jehoram did not return to the Lord. God sent his gracious word to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithfulness. And they did not turn to the Lord. And now in the days of Jehoahaz, First, uh, 2 Kings 13, 6, the Lord was gracious to them, and he had compassion on them, and he turned to them. Chapter 13, verse 23, but they did not turn to him. How very contemporary. Israel wants relief from trouble, not relationship with God. She craves therapy, not transformation. As for you and me, as for us, you and I must recognize that in our day, Jehovah is still the same Exodus God who sees not only Egyptians and Arameans oppressing his people, but also our oppression. He sees the things that weigh us down in this world of turmoil and strife. He hears your groaning. And he listens to you when you entreat him for your favor. Notwithstanding our sin and unfaithfulness, he listens to our entreaties for his favor. What a gracious God we serve. Why do we seek the Lord as The hymn writer has put it, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. You would have never sought the Lord initially if the Lord had not moved you to seek Him, seeking you. You would never seek the Lord now unless He moves you to do so by His grace. Why does God listen to us and save us? 
Yes, because he's a gracious God. But again, fundamentally, because he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even more fundamentally, we who live in the new covenant age of God's saving grace know that God listens and saves his people because he remembers his covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Westminster Larger Catechism 31 points out this important principle. The covenant of grace was made with Christ, the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. What has God done as he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as he remembers his covenant with Christ, the second Adam? He's given us a Savior. He's given us a Deliverer. He's delivered us from the oppression of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Remember the angel said to Joseph, Your wife Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. Jesus, Savior. Jesus, Deliverer. The God of our salvation came to us in the person of His Son. While we were yet enemies, He came to us. Before we sought Him, before He moved us by His grace to seek Him, He came to us in the person of His Son to rescue us from slavery to sin. If we're in a right spiritual mind, it's quite overwhelming what God has done, notwithstanding our sin and infidelity. In this obscure narrative, a little red part of Scripture, we see Christ lifted up on the cross. We're reminded that sin and covenant infidelity can only be covered by grace, which comes from the hand of our covenantally faithful God. Amen. Lord, our God, how often it's true of us that uh, your grace leaves us entrenched in our ingratitude. How often it can be said of us that uh, grace is not so marvelous sometimes to our souls, especially when we're weighed down, when we're oppressed by of the world, the flesh, and the devil, when we're overcome by the trials and temptations and 
the, the troubles of, of this life. And we pray that we would not be that people that does not turn to you. Having seen your grace time and again, having received overtures from you time and again, they come to us as we read your word. Privately, they come to us as we read your word in our family worship. They come as your word is read and preached constantly. We're barraged with these overtures of grace and we pray that we would not be among those who spurn your grace and do not turn to you. Deliver us, O God, from our ingratitude. Deliver us from our sin and infidelity to you. Remember your covenant of grace to us, O Lord. Show your covenant faithfulness to us, even as You have promised to do. Remember your covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember the covenant uh, that you have made with Christ as the second Adam. And in him, all of your elect people. We plead with you, O God. The God of all grace. The God of all glory. The God of the covenant. Hear us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is 598 in the Trinity hymnal. Let's stand together as we sing.